I'm Trent Jacobs, and this is SBE Talks 2. Andy Pepper. Welcome to the SBE Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Jacobs, the digital editor of the Journal of Petroleum Technology. Today, we're speaking with Andy Pepper, who's a veteran geoscientist and the managing director of This Is Petroleum Systems, based here in Houston. Uh, we're about to dig into some of Andrew's uh, latest work, which is helping to explain how oil flows out of tight rock reservoirs and also why it won't flow. Uh, this is a really important topic for anyone developing unconventional assets. Did you know that SB members get up to 50% discount in the SB bookstore? Please visit the store.sbe.org to find your next reading material. Many titles are available in both print and digital versions. That's store.sbe.org. All you need to do is log in to see your SBE member discount. More information in the show notes of this episode. So Andy, before we get into the weeds here, I uh, just thought it'd be good to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your upstream background for us. Um, you have a, uh, a pretty storied career here. So can you, can you give us the uh, sum of that? Yeah, I started out as a, a geologist in 1981, got involved in some international exploration projects, one of which led to working in China. We drilled 17 dry holes in a row, and then someone realized that uh, one thing that was missing was the oil. And so at that time, uh, the... Uh, there's a lot of work going on in the research center at VP Sunbury on geochemistry and how oil is generated and migrated and moved around. And so someone thought it was a good idea to send me to the lab. And, and so that's where I kind of developed some of the, uh, some of the expertise that I'm, I'm currently sort of digging back into now in, in this latest stage of my career. And then following that, uh, went on to be uh, work at Hess as chief geologist and then latterly BHP as a VP of uh, geoscience, which was a great opportunity with, with BHP having bought Petrahawk to kind of understand all the workflows and, and try to try to uh, try come up with some new workflows and some new ideas, especially integrating petrophysics and geochemistry and, and mixing a lot of the disciplines up, which really is, is part of the theme of what we're going to talk about today. It's really a, a sort of a boundary between formation evaluation and geochemistry, which is where I'm coming from in today's discussion. Yeah, it's interesting. You brought up Petrohawk. I always kind of, uh, whenever somebody drops the, the name Petrohawk, I always think, well, you, you, that's kind of a signal that you've been there since the early phase of of the shale revolution. Uh, so you have a lot of a lot of good perspective. Yeah, I think it was really started out at Hess because Hess had a lot of legacy acreage on, including I think the original Bakkenwell was drilled by drilled by Amarada Hess. So uh, yeah, so in in the Williston Basin, and that, uh, around uh, 2006 probably was where I first got introduced to. The whole unconventional, especially the oil unconventionals, as it as it as it blossomed around, you know, the late the late two thousands there. Well, and I wanted to give you a special thanks because uh, when you came into the office today, uh, you were telling me that you had the you know you drove in here from uh, uh, the middle of Texas. So so where do you live? Yeah, I live in Fredericksburg, and I jokingly tell folks that uh, I'm in the center of the uh, U.S. oil industry because I have a four hour drive to see clients in in Midland, or I can come to Houston and more or less the same time, or I can drive to Fort Worth. So. Literally, uh, get to live in a beautiful part of the country, but also it's very convenient. Don't have to get on a plane anywhere to do most of my work. Yeah, well, so far we we haven't had many guests. It's a very young podcast, but you win the award for uh, the longest distance uh, to come and sit with us here in Houston. So we got you in here today because you know you really you recently published some interesting work on the subject of 
uh, fluid saturation. And one of your papers in the title, it said uh, fluid saturation isn't what it used to be. And and what you're talking about is, is tight mudstones or shale. And this paper that I'm talking about that I wanted to dig into was presented at the Unconventional Resources Technology Conference in Denver. Uh, that's Urtech 196 for you folks uh, who want to go on to OnePetro. One of your co-authors was uh, with Anna Darko. Um, and it was a really interesting paper. Your work addresses the issue of recovery factors. And so I wanted to kick off with a question about that. Since I came into this business, um, it, was, it became clear to me that recovery factors have been a subject of mystery for the shale sector. We often hear figures like 5 or 10% of the oil in place is being recovered from a horizontal well. But then there's this big question, what is really being drained? Is that 5% from a big box or is that 5% from a little box? Why has this issue been such a challenge? Yeah, I, I think really the, the short answer is that the you know the the mobile oil in place that we appreciate is 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 being overestimated and, it, and it, it's wrong in many cases, uh, and, and I'm talking about organic rich reservoirs. So so the kind of core evaluation techniques that we've been using in conventionals have been uh, through necessity very rapidly adapted from previously shale gas analysis and also in many cases, just simply ported from the conventional world and, and adapted as best as possible. You're talking about core analysis to yeah, some yeah, yeah. large to, extent? To, to core, core analysis methodologies. I'm lucky enough to have a, a unique perspective in being able to look back to the 80s in the lab, was doing some of the work that I think is relevant to this subject. And so I think uh, in, in, that, in that sort of uh, rush to, to try and understand this new phenomenon, we kind of forgot some of the principles that, that perhaps you know, would have been commonplace to people who studied source rocks for the conventional petroleum system back in the 80s and 90s. And so what I've been doing is drawing drawing on that on that understanding. And, and I think all the, all the major companies, BP, where I was, uh, Shell and Exxon did formative work in this area of understanding the, the sorbed hydrocarbons. And, that, and that's really a key to, to the argument. Can you touch on that and talk about the sorbed hydrocarbons? Uh, abso- absolutely, yeah. In a water-wet pore system, in the mineral matrix system, uh, and there are some cartoons in the in the Urtec paper to try and explain this. Then the petroleum exists as a phase, and it's separated from the water phase by the interfacial tension around that phase boundary between the two the two fluids. Uh, when we introduce organic rich material, which is where the the molecules are actually generated in the first place in the organic matrix, then there's there's really two processes. One is absorption, which is the essentially the dissolution of molecules within this complex framework. So you can think of molecules trapped in molecular cages within this complex structure of kerogen. And then the other part of it is perhaps well better underappreciated, which which is uh, Adsorption, which is which is the molecules that are adhere to the, the surface of the true pore system. So together, these things I, we're not smart enough, I don't think, right now to understand how to separate those two phenomena. But together, it basically means that the, the, the there's an amount of, of of petroleum molecules in a, an organic rich rock that are part of the solid phase of that organic matter. Mm-hmm. So they shouldn't be counted as, as fluid molecules and given the, uh, the, the term saturation, because the term saturation, in my view, should be reserved for the mobile hydrocarbons and how they, how they compete with the water phase for, for production. So, so in a nutshell, you're really challenging even the definition of uh, the original oil in place here. You know that that we're that we're we're lumping in oil that will never come out of the ground with oil that will. Yeah, and the problem we have is that the laboratory techniques we have they don't differentiate this. So, so solvents do not care whether they're extracting these molecules from the from the organic framework or whether they're 
producing a, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're recovering a, a fluid phase that's present in the rock. Obviously, if we have a, a, an organic lean rock, say that, say the middle backen or perhaps some of the, the sandy, silty beds in the bone spring that are just sort of tight conventional reservoirs, mm-hmm. then the sorption process, because there's very little organic matter there, is not an issue. So we're not... I'm not trying to say all of the all, every single uh, shale or unconventional reservoir is a problem, but the more organic rich the reservoir is, the more we need to think about the sorption process and make this subtraction from the total solvent extractable oil in place or, or, or the pyrolyzable uh, or retort oil in place. All of these all of these measures, they just give us a bulk number of molecules, and it's and, it, and then we have to partition them into which molecules belong in the solid phase and are not mobile and which which belong in the fluid phase and, and are part of the mobile fluid system. Right. And it's interesting you mentioned the bone spring, which is, you know, one of the popular targets out in the uh, in the Permian. And I just saw a gun barrel stratigraphic completion kind of a or landing zone targets from from one of the big operators out there. And it was clear just to look at their their gun barrel that they had a different completion style. Uh, it was more geometric for the bone spring, which you can get away with as what you're kind of saying uh, versus the Wolf Camp A, which is much tighter. And uh, they had a, a much more customized approach to the target zones and the, or the landing zones for those wells. So that that may speak to what you're talking about. This is a separate topic, but but some of the other work I've been doing is on is on uh, fluid prediction and and the amount of storage in the rock will also determine the GOR of the of, of the fluid system as well. And that's very important in distinguishing things like the Wolf Camp A and the Wolf Camp B. But that's a separate story for the moment. We've kind of set up the the why is this important? Um, you know, like I said, at, at a at a very high level, uh, you you have oil that will move and oil that won't move, and you need to really know uh, the difference between those two. And you referenced uh, those cartoons that are in your paper. I found those really compelling because it shows a, a tight rock pour. And regardless of your expertise in this area, what you see is uh, the fluid phase in the middle of the pour, that's the mobile oil. And then on the walls of the pour is that immobile oil that you're talking about. And so we've always known that these these pores are really tiny, containing just a handful of molecules. Uh, but your, your work suggests that you're not even getting all those molecules. You're only getting kind of that nougaty sweet center, right? Right. Perhaps I'm just a contrarian, but I, but I see the, the problem a little bit upside down in that, you know, we, we, we've talked about how large oil molecules are and how small the pores are. Actually, oil molecules are, are, are actually are actually quite quite small compared to, you know, a three to five nanometer pore. And, and really what, where I think the small pore size comes in is that the, the, the tiny pores that we don't even see on an SEM image, uh, the things that are down, you know, at the size of a water molecule, for example, because the rock was, was deposited in a water-wet state, then the water molecules don't get to choose where they live. So, so they're, they're, if, if, if there are tiny pores in that rock that are one molecule, water molecule size, they'll have a water molecule in there and, and the oil will never want to go in, in that pore system because of capillary forces. And the rates at which uh, oil's being generated in these systems is so infinitesimally slow that actually the oil gets to choose which part of the pore system it wants to it wants to be in, and I think this is one of the other, the other reasons that shortcomings I think with current core analysis is I I think there's been some work by Hess and others published where where they demonstrated that not all the not all the water is being recovered, and this is another additive factor towards the 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 overestimation of the oil saturation because in the in the sort of current core core analysis methodology we're assuming that if we measure the water then one minus the water is the hydrocarbons if we underreport the water. Then again, we're over-exaggerating the the hydrocarbon 
saturation, which is which is the thesis of, of what I'm doing with with my independent method. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. I mean, uh, there's a lot of research. I, I remember early in the uh, shale experience, people were uh, uh, trying to, you know, having trouble with understanding why they would put, uh, you know, they would put the fluids down in the well to stimulate, and they would only get 20 percent back. And and that changed uh, depending on the formation where you in uh, you were in. But it sounds like uh, people are getting a handle on those uh, capillary forces and the why of that that uh, phenomenon. Yeah, and that, and that would be in the in, in the mineral matrix pore pore system, and, and and depending on which petrophysicist I talk to, some some folks like the the, the, the term uh, term bound oil to describe what's happening to the molecules in the sorbed state. So we, you know we all we all accept there's bound water in on clays that is not not mobile, and and so in in a way that what I'm trying to calculate is to is to subtract the the bound oil in the organic matter, the sorbed oil or bound oil, if you if you'll if you'll allow me to call it that, um, and, and so really it's it's that it's that sort of subtraction that's really important in understanding what's mobile and what's not. So next on the SB podcast, we're going to talk about uh, recovery matrix and these uh, the results of uh, Andy's work here. But uh, first, we have a question to our audience. Would you like to have all things SBE wherever you go instantly? We've got you covered. SBE now has an app. You get access to One Petro, the latest technical content from SBE publications. You can even bookmark and read my JPT articles. Plus, there's a full SBE event calendar. I've got the SBE app on my smartphone. It's easy to access, easy to use. It's available in both the App Store and on Google Play for your Android devices. So just search SBE International and download it today. So Andy, for the first half of this podcast, we've kind of been setting up some of the uh, the nuances of uh, of this question about mobile oil versus immobile oil, and, and how it can get trapped in the rock, and then you know how you know the oil can go preferentially into these pores that that will allow you to uh, flow it back out once you stimulate the rock. But what this what this comes down to is something that we kind of touched on earlier, which is uh, recovery factors. And and what you're what you're arguing in your in your Urtech paper is that recovery factors may actually be higher than we think. So does that suggest that the that the reservoir matrix is not really a huge contributor to production? One and one reason why I ask that is because I've heard experts bandy this idea about that uh, that they think the rock matrix is actually only producing into the wellbore just a few inches from the face of the fracture. Uh, does your work support that concept that idea? Yeah. So if our if our estimates of, of absolute rock permeability are about right, then, then then yes, there should be very little drawdown of the of the virgin matrix pore system. You know, quite close to the quite close to the induced uh, natural fractures. Um, I mean, this is really not 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 my field, but but I hear some workers uh, think that the, the frac process itself disturbs the grain boundaries, even though it doesn't necessarily create a discrete fracture away from the from the from the induced fracture system, somehow you're kind of rubbleizing or or or, or, or altering the the permeability at the grain contacts of the surrounding material. So in in a sense, it would make it, that makes sense in in terms of inducing a permeability that will allow you to drain deeper into the rock matrix than than it would be if you're just relying on the virgin uh, permeability itself of the of the host rock. 
follow-up question here, does that bleed into this idea of uh, fracture complexity because you're getting more surface area? Um, and that's, and when, when I say fracture face, I'm meaning the, the actual rock that's, that's exposed to the matrix and to the open system uh, where the uh, prop and pack is to allow flow to happen. And so the more of that you create because you're not gonna get these, this oil to travel very far out of the rock, that's that's what's becoming critical to to uh, develop with your fracks. Uh, as I say, not my not my 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 field, but but it is my belief. Yes, the the, the fracks are doing a, in that sense a much better job than we ever imagined. And, and and you know, for those of us that worked on source rocks back in the in the early eighties and nineties, uh, you know, on on how how the oil gets out on a geological time scale, it's just amazing to me to to, to see how much of the oil we're able to recover with the with, with the frack program. I've heard that a lot over the years, which is I'm surprised this works, you know, yeah, even no, for, exactly. the, for the people who pioneered, uh, you know, the method just because the, the, uh, permeability, the nano Darcy, uh, scenario that we're dealing with, it just, it, it's it, for a lot of people like you, that just, uh, who have studied this from a physics angle, they're just amazed the quantities of oil that actually can come out of this kind of rock. It, it's incredible. And I think as we're getting better at it, I think there's a lot of evidence to show that, uh, things like the, you know, the producible GR because we're contacting more and more of the rock more efficiently, you know, that you can see that the, the condensate yields are getting richer in some of the plays where we thought they were quite lean. So the more you can, all of, all of this for me is additional evidence that we're contacting the rock in a big way uh, and producing more fluid than, than, than we thought, which again comes back to my thesis that, you know, if we're dividing into a smaller smaller oil in place, then, then our recovery factors are, are bigger than, than we currently appreciate. Which begs the question, how does this affect well spacing and infill developments? Absolutely. So, so again, uh, again, not not my my field, but but you know, if we if we're um, if if we're recovering more oil than we think, then then surely you know it's time to to have one more uh, one more think about you know spacing and infill. Uh, and I know there are some companies that have um, staked out very very large numbers of sort of infill well programs. Since everybody's trying to uh, reach free cash flow right now, I mean, in a conventional development, you wouldn't drill more wells than you. Than you need to to drain the the deposit uh, efficiently. So so I, I wonder if there's a chance to go back now, have a, have one more chance to look at the data before we before we go into true manufacturing mode. Right, and and to the uh, you know sort of in the defense of the engineering community here, when you know the, the at the beginning of the shale revolution, uh, you don't you're doing a lot of unbounded well test, and so it's kind of hard to figure out some of these questions. And then, like you said, uh, going back to the beginning of our talk, that uh, that the core process, the the core analysis process that shale industry has used traditionally for the last 15, 20 years, is really borrowed from a completely different you know sector of the business. It was never designed for these uh, these these insanely complicated formations. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I just wanted was there anything to add on on your method uh, um, and uh, what separates it from the others? Because I know we were talking about using solvents. This is the Dean. Dark yes. uh, core analysis yeah. method for all you yeah. you rockheads out there. You'll know what that is. Um, and and can you could you sum up uh, how your how you've come to all these conclusions? What your methodology is? Yeah. yeah. So because the because the producible hydrocarbon uh, producible uh, oils that we we see are are, are essentially ninety five chemically they're ninety five ninety seven percent hydrocarbons, and because pyrolysis measures hydrocarbons, whereas solvent extracts will 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 pull out uh, this resin and asphaltene high molecular weight material. That, that is essentially all in the sorb phase and, and is not part of the reservoir fluid. So what I do is I've, I, I've sort of simplified it and, and I've gone to pyrolysis, which is a measure of hydrocarbons, as my definition of oil in place. But I still need to I still need to partition how much of the pyrolysis yield 
belongs in the sorb phase versus the fluid phase. And that's where my, I've developed some, some relationships between sorption and thermal stress. So sorption is a stronger factor at low thermal stress. So, and I think a lot of people have drilled their way into understanding this. So, so on the edges of the kitchens, you've got lot things that look great on logs. They're highly resistive. They look like they've got a lot of mobile oil in them, but essentially they're full of this oil wet organic matter. And as you, as we, and that's because sorption is very, very strong in an organic rich rock, but also at low temperature. And as we go to higher temperature into these shale sweet spots, we actually start to see that sorption number dropping away. And we don't want to subtract too much of this sorbed oil from the budget. Otherwise we're then going to underestimate the amount of producible oil in place. So getting that sorption number right is something I've focused on in the last few years. Back in the eighties, we came up with some preliminary estimates of around hundred milligram per gram, which is basically 10 weight percent. So you're saying that the organic matter can, can, can hold on 10% weight of, of hydrocarbons of its, of its own weight, right? Well, one part, uh, or, or yeah, so t- yeah, basically ten percent of its own weight, um, and so it's really important to get that number right and not to to subtract too much of the fluid. Right. So, so on one hand, you don't want to overestimate, and on the other hand, you don't want to underestimate. Um, and, and just a quick note, I mean, we we I think we've seen examples out in the field where people have read logs and and um, and done their other traditional interpretations and gotten it wrong. And we've seen where you thought it was an oil well turned out to be only a gas well. Right. And, and, and yeah, or, or, or basically you frack it and produces, produces water only, despite the fact that it looks, looks like a great, a great pay zone. And, you know, and I think everybody's got a part, you know, everyone's holding a part of the elephant here. So I know that there are engineers that know, that sort of know in inverted commas that the saturations that they're, that they're being provided with are wrong because they, they don't match simulation, right? So they're having to, I know I've talked to some engineers who are throwing away saturation because they know it doesn't, doesn't match. Um, and, and then, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of petrophysicists out there that, that, that appreciate fully that when they calculate these high saturations at, at low maturity, they, they know there's something wrong with it. They just don't have a systematic way to give it a haircut. And so really what I'm providing is, is it's really a, a tool to feed petrophysics and to inform petrophysics and then flowing through to, to getting your reservoir simulation right. Well, Andy, I, I think we're out of time. It went by really fast because this is a fascinating topic. But to your last point there, it, it, it seems like you could sum up uh, this way. Um, don't throw out your ground truth and take the simulators with a grain of salt <laughs> and, and figure a way out to get them to have a happy marriage. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate well, thank it. you. Thank you very much. We want to keep this conversation going, so please use the hashtag SB podcast on all of your social media channels. Reach out to us, leave your comments, give us five-star reviews. We love hearing from you. You can find all of the SB podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Search SBE podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn. We're also online at sb.org slash podcast. And of course, we want to thank you uh, for listening and uh, please go on to JPT online and read us in print, uh, bookmark us and check in all the time for new content. The SBE podcast is produced by Jason Notoris. I'm Trent. See you next time. SBE podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible and sustainable manner. Learn more at spe.org.